The healthcare industry is there to prevent the worst from happening to an individual, but often it does so at the expense of the well-being of the planet. In return, global crises such as climate change cause serious health effects such as heat deaths, respiratory problems and more. On today's episode we ask the question, what are the sustainability challenges facing the healthcare sector and how can we improve the situation? Welcome back everyone. I'm Klitsia and uh, I'm Fran. Hi Fran. So who do you talk to this week and why? So this week I talked to Martin van Alst. He is an incredibly big voice in climate change as one of the coordinating lead authors of the IPCC report. Uh, the IPCC report is a series of reports that uh, combine the findings of world scientists to brief us on the current state of climate change, its impacts and our possible mitigation and adaptation strategies. He is also the Director General of Chief Science Officer at the Royal Meteorological Institute of the Netherlands. Uh, he is a representative at the World Meteorological Organization, and we are very proud to have him as a Professor of Climate and Disaster Resilience of the ITC faculty here at University of Twente. What is also very relevant to the topic today is that he used to be a Director uh, of the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center. So all in all, just a truly astounding individual. I was really really excited to meet him yeah uh, <laughs> i can say that he was <laughs> um, and talking about the topic what are the sustainable development goals related to this episode so this episode will focus on the ties of the healthcare industry and sustainability so that's firmly relating it to sdg3 good health and well-being and sdg13 climate action a common feature of SDGs is that they are not isolated, they appear together. So working working towards fixing one problem often requires us to address other problems, as is very much the case in the case of the, these two SDGs, as we will hear with in the interview with uh, Martin van Alst that is coming up now. Hello, here with me is uh, Martin van Alst. Um, I don't know where, where I begin with your credentials. You are the Director General and Chief Science Officer at the Royal Meteorological Institute, uh, representative uh, at the World Meteorological Organization, coordinating lead author at the IPCC report. Uh, importantly for this topic, you used to be the Director of International Red Cross Red Crescent uh, Climate Center. And we're very proud that you're a full professor uh, of climate and disaster resilience at the ITC Center here at the University of Twente. So it's an honor to have you here and thank you for uh, giving us a bit of your time from, a, I'm assuming, a very busy schedule. Well, it's always a pleasure to be in today, <laughs> and it's nice to be speaking to students. So uh, this is the best part of my uh, combination of professional lives, I would say. Great. Before we begin, I have to ask you a question we ask to all of our guests. What is your most unsustainable guilty pleasure? Well, I'm afraid I love travel uh, and I have cut down severely on uh, intercontinental travel and flights, for instance. Uh, but still, travel does have a footprint. Uh, but I, I can't resist at times uh, to explore other places and other cultures. That's fair. <laughs> uh, well, today you gave a talk at the TechMed event that we are recording at uh, about the interplay between sustainability and healthcare. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think the, the, the main message is there that the connection is both ways. So uh, if we live unsustainably and with how the climate is changing right now, we're creating a lot of additional health risks that the health system needs to partly help us cope with. Uh, so it needs to be prepared for what's coming our way in terms of rising risks uh, and adapt itself to be ready for those. 
But on the other hand, uh, the healthcare sector is quite a major emitter of greenhouse gas and in general has a big environmental footprint of its own. Um, and because it's been so mission driven, just you know, curing people, saving people's lives, it's probably closed its eyes a bit too long for um, that footprint that it, that it produces itself. So there's a lot to gain uh, thinking a bit more actively about how we can reduce that footprint. Okay, and I know this is not your area of expertise, but can you talk a bit about what are the most significant imp impacts of the healthcare industry on the environment? Well, in general, um, all sectors uh, have uh, an issue with consumables and, and energy. Um, so those are, you know, the buildings that, that they operate in, uh, the many people coming to work, so transportation is another one. Um, but also the, the, the consumables from the you know, pharmaceutical industry supplying the, the medication uh, to also you know, the, the disposable uh, uh, equipment and, and, and gloves, for instance, in operating theaters. So I've heard there's tens of kilos of, uh, of thrash produced in one single operation usually. Uh, and part of that is because we have developed very good procedures for instance, you know, to use disposable uh, disposable goods to minimize risk of infection. So there's, there's often good reasons behind that. But some of those things have also just developed over time and they happen to be the, the way we do things. So it's really worth it to look through those chains to see whether we can reuse some things, uh, you know, maybe instead of disposing everything, be able to clean and reuse some of the equipment. Um, and in general, be a bit more cognizant about the trade-off that we're facing there about the care for the individual, which of course needs to be as good as possible, but also the care for the planet that needs to go alongside. And at the end of the day, the planet takes care of the individual as well, doesn't it? Exactly. So that's where what I said, uh, said at the start, uh, the fact that climate itself is also posing significant risks to health. Uh, you know, if you're a medical doctor and you want to optimize the health outcomes for the society you live in, then it should also be a concern, for instance, that in the Netherlands we're losing hundreds of lives in, uh, in heat waves, you know, uh, and they are getting worse because of the increase in greenhouse gases and the medical industry has a significant contribution to that. Yeah, as an asthmatic, I can really feel air quality in right, certain exactly. cities. Yeah. Um, I would like to go back to your work for a moment because you do a lot of theoretical work, a lot of uh, teaching work, but also you have worked for the Red Cross, Red Crescent, that they do a lot of groundwork, a lot of practical on the lines um, with the people work. How do you make sure that these worlds are connected and that the people implementing changes know about all the theoretical work that's happening? Well, I guess that's one of the big um, challenges of our time, right? Uh, to, on the one hand, ask the right questions in science, to, to be able to answer, the, the, to, 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 under, to increase understanding in, in the right direction, to be able to, uh, to address the most pressing issues but then also to communicate them in a way that, they can be, that that information can be used for decisions, be it decisions about our greenhouse gases or decisions about the, the rising risks that we face. And um, There is an element to it about ensuring we address the right questions in science, but there's also a lot to it that has to do with communication and empowerment in the end, to ensure people are aware of the decisions they're taking and uh, what they're doing or not doing, uh, but then in the end also that, that they make the choices. So it's also not, not so there's often that thinking that it's uh, scientists being aware of a particular risk and then telling people what to do. Uh, but it's often much more ensuring that you get the conversation started 
and that you provide the right information for people to make their own informed decisions. And is this referring mostly to personal choices or also to industry transformations that we need to see? Um, both, I would say. So it's, um, it's individuals, but in the end uh, we need a collective change that is, that is much bigger than, than just the sums of the, the, the first mover individuals that would go first. So you need government action for that and you need industry transformation for that. Um, and I'd say uh, we could take that slowly and uh, you know have a couple of quick startups uh, lead by example and see it, uh, see it emerge as an attractive option over time. But the problem is we don't have much time. So a couple of these transitions need to happen so quickly that it will probably require a bigger steer. In the end, that bigger steer then hardly needs to come from government and from regulation, for instance. Uh, and that's also, in the end, a collective decision through our democracies where that public debate needs to be had. So that's also a question, how does the science land in the decisions people make when they vote in elections, for instance? And who are you finding it the hardest to talk to or who are you finding the hardest uh, to make listen to you when it comes to climate science? The people, uh, the citizens or the governments or industry? Well, they each need a different, uh, a different tone of voice, a different type of, uh, you know, the typically government departments or, um, you know, I, I speak a lot right now to, to um, uh, water boards and, and lo local authorities, the safety regions, and they, uh, they can handle quite technical information. You know, they deal with um, norms about, for instance, what, what type of frequency of inundation of a particular area would be acceptable. And we can produce the climate information that allows them to calculate what that means for water management, for instance, in a particular area. So the link from science to decisions can be programmed quite technically. For an individual, it's, it's often much more the sense of urgency coming to grips with, do we really know for sure that the climate is changing? Do we know for sure that humans have something to do with it? How big is my contribution to the global problem? So you get into these discussions that are often a bit more, um, a bit more organic. Um, and to some extent, it's also um, the, the different type of images that, that come with the science, right? So climate science is so pervasive that um, you can talk about very abstract numbers like millimeters of rainfall or um, millimeters per year of sea level rise, those sorts of things. Or you can talk about the impacts it can have on people's lives, uh, and then you can do that through a range of impact pathways of how changes of variables in the weather or in the, the, the ocean in the end affect infrastructure or productivity in certain areas, and then how it, it affects individuals. Uh, that already requires a very different type of science. It also requires a very different type of communication. And one thing that's really changed in the past couple of years is that climate is no longer just a question of the faraway future but it is something that we're seeing in practice. And that has really changed our ability also to communicate based on what people are already experiencing. So a real shift in how we've programmed the science is to, to first of all, look more at the changing extremes rather than just the changing averages. It's often the weather extremes where you really get hit by the impacts of climate change already. Uh, but then secondly, to, um, to look at, at those changes here and now, what has already changed rather than just what might change in the faraway future if we do or don't uh, reduce our emission of greenhouse gases. Uh, and that's a scientific field, attribution of extreme weather events that didn't even exist 20 years ago. So we are now calculating the climate fingerprint on, say, 
a particular heat wave or a particular storm. You know, the, the storm in Libya, for instance, that medicane, a sort of hurricane in the Mediterranean, yeah. and it killed almost 10,000 people in Libya. Of course, partly because a dam failed, so there's an element of vulnerability there. But it was also a record rainfall that is, well, up to 30 times more likely due to climate change. We can now calculate that climate fingerprint for that specific event. So we can pinpoint how, how the climate is indeed. People are not just sensing that things might be changing, but we can put a scientific answer to that. And that then allows you, on the one hand, to recognize the urgency of, what, of what's already hitting us and that we don't want to get worse. But on the other hand, also, the, the, so that's a, um, a reason to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But on the other hand, it also points to the urgency of adapting and to, to uh, improve our risk management for what has already changed. So that's a, an, an example where we've, we're doing different science now, and the, the way we've reprogrammed the science and the answers that we're now providing allows us to communicate more effectively in ways that people can relate to for things that are already happening right now. You said it was called attribution science? Yeah. Is that very connected to the topic of the previous and the following COP, the loss and damage? Indeed, yeah. So that's driven part of the, the, the political calls for... Uh, well, compensation is what the, the developing countries in particular are calling it. So they're saying the richest countries in the world have, have emitted most of the, uh, the greenhouse gases. We are now suffering most of the consequences. So somehow you need to compensate this for that damage. Uh, it's politically still very, very sensitive. So it's a big topic for discussion again in the, in the upcoming uh, COP where um, you know, part of the question is also, well, like I, I just mentioned with that example of the flooding in Libya, you know, people died, you could argue partly because the extreme rainfall has gotten worse, more intense, uh, or the same rainfall more frequent uh, due to the changing climate. But of course, there was also a dam there that probably shouldn't have failed with this amount of rainfall. So who is to blame? The climate and therefore you know, and, and, and the greenhouse gases and therefore the West that has emitted those more than maybe the average citizen hit by, by that inundation? Or um, is it the local spatial planning and the poor construction of the dam? And it's very difficult to disentangle those two, which is part of the reason why those negotiations are so difficult. I, I found it connected to the, today's topic because it's easy to calculate the price of infrastructure that fails but we also need to account for healthcare. Some countries are going to pay for healthcare more than others, and who is going to cover the costs, I guess, is part of loss and damage and attribution. Yeah, and if you have a strong healthcare system, the impacts of the same climate changes are probably a lot less than if you don't. You know, we're, we're losing lives in countries like Uganda, for instance, due to flooding that then leads to cholera outbreaks. We don't have cholera in the Netherlands because we have a very effective uh, well, a water management system, but also a healthcare system. That treats those diseases, so so we, we you know we don't get those outbreaks even if we would have an inundation. Um, so it's um, th it's another element of the climate justice in a way that uh, the the societies that are poorest uh, are you know often have contributed the least to the, the historical emissions of greenhouse gases, but are also the most vulnerable because they don't have a good healthcare system, for instance. So they're um, their impacts of climate change multiply much more quickly, uh, and particularly indeed in, in terms of uh, health impacts and, and lives lost. Interestingly, um, that is then an issue that, that speaks to hearts and minds very quickly as a justice issue because people feel it's, you know, it's, it's not right if people die or if people get sick and it could have been prevented. Um, 
the World Bank also calculated at some point uh, what the financial impact of climate change would be on developing country economies. And initially, they, they didn't have very high estimates for that because their macroeconomic models didn't really account for all these pathways. So, for instance, they were trying to model, so the, the, the primary objective of the World Bank overall is a, a world free of poverty. By the way, they've now added uh, a world free of poverty on a livable planet. So Ooh. they've included the sustainability <laughs> element into their overall mission. Uh, but that's only recently that it was added. So until then it was, was a world free of poverty. So one of the primary drivers that they were calculating in their economic models was, you know, does a particular investment that the World Bank would finance in a developing country, does it lead to a redu reduction in overall poverty rates? So they're calculating, are people, uh, on average in, in an economy like India's, are people moving in or out of poverty? And usually you, you get the so-called graduation rate where people move out of that extreme poverty bracket of a couple of percent of the population per year. But then when they started looking more carefully at the, the poverty survey, so they, they essentially follow people in, in you know, a particular part of the country for several years to see, you know, at a household level, what, what sort of economic shocks people face and how their income evolves. And it turned out there were, so I don't know the exact numbers by heart, but it was the order of, say, a 2% per year average uh, graduation rate from poverty. But it was actually a 15% of the population moving out of poverty and another 13% moving back in. And then when they started looking at the factors of why people were graduating or particularly why they were falling back into poverty, it suddenly turned out the impacts of the climate shocks that were not well captured in the classical economic models that were doing these macroeconomic calculations that led to the 2%. If you look at a household survey data level, you suddenly saw all kinds of shocks appear that were very climate related. And it included direct impacts. Um, so, for instance, if you're a smallholder farmer and you lose your, uh, your crop due to uh, a very bad drought that might be partly climate-induced, then that has a, a direct impact shock effect on you. Uh, but quite a few of these were also related to extreme weather events and health impacts. Uh, because, for instance, when the breadwinner of a family gets ill because of a climate-induced disease, say a cholera outbreak after, uh, after a flood, uh, that has an immediate impact on household income as well. So suddenly the World Bank realized that the, the, the pretty direct impact on one of their primary economic goals, reduction in, in poverty levels, was much more immediate than they had thought before. So they also recognized, for instance, that investments in proper healthcare systems to prevent some of those impacts were one of the best ways to adapt to a changing climate. I'm noticing in our conversation now we're going a lot like uh, we're mentioning a lot of really bad impacts of climate change and uh, deaths and cholera and everything. And then also the changes that are happening on a, on a hopeful note, um, how these definitions are changing of sustainability, our economic goals, microeconomics. So how do you balance um, talking about the doom and gloom of climate change and talking about the positive changes that are happening? Well, there's a lot of uh, communications research that just talking do gloom and doom uh, is not effective, right? People want a sense of agency and there is a lot we can do and there's a lot that we're already doing that has a big effect. Um, so, for instance, we launched our KNMI 23 climate scenarios for the Netherlands uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and there is a high emission scenario, which is a worst case in terms of what could happen in terms of uh, the climate in the Netherlands. Uh, we've deliberately included that scenario. But we're particularly including it because there is a risk of uh, carbon cycle feedback. So, for instance, if permafrost melts and that releases methane, or if forests die back, 
there could be natural uh, increases in, in the carbon cycle on top of the human emissions. We could also be out of luck in terms of the sensitivity of the climate system, so the same amount of increase in greenhouse gases could lead to a larger temperature response. And we could be out of luck with the overall temperature rise in the world leading to more extreme events, for instance. So for all of those reasons, it's good to have a high, a high scenario that, you know, as a worst case scenario, takes care of all those risks, if you will. Uh, but if you look at the pure emission scenario, this highest scenario was constructed as a more or less business as usual scenario before we had the Paris Agreement. So it was essentially if we keep emitting greenhouse gases with economic growth unabated as if we had you know, been on that pathway of growth globally before the Paris Agreement, then we would end up with this scenario, with this amount of greenhouse gases due to human emissions. Um, by now, purely that emission scenario, I'm not saying the climate scenario, I think the climate scenario could happen, but the emission scenario is becoming very unrealistic because we have seen a big shift since the Paris Agreement. So we are seeing a much more rapid uptake in renewable energy, more investment in renewable energy than, than people would have imagined possible before, uh, say, 2015 or 2010. So a lot of technological changes are happening faster, a lot of behavioral changes, people adopting these, these new technologies are happening faster than we thought before. The doom and gloom part of it is that it's happening faster than people thought before, but not fast enough to stay below the, for instance, the 1.5 degrees global temperature rise target of the Paris Agreement. And at the same time, scientific evidence is mounting that at that temperature level, for instance, the 1.5 degrees, it sounds like an abstract figure, you know, less than the difference between day and night or summer and winter. But it, if you add it up globally and you think of, you know, a, a, uh, the temperature of a, a pan at some point heating a hitting a boiling point, and suddenly things, funny things start happening. Um, and that's partly where we've now seen scientific evidence come in over the past 10 years, that the risks are actually higher at a lower temperature level already. So we're more concerned about what would already happen at that 1.5 degrees temperature rise, for instance, in terms of loss of ecosystems or indeed economic impacts on vulnerable populations, but also added, you know, aggregate economic losses for the world than we were before. So that is the gloom and doom part. Uh, maybe the, the hope part then is then if we, if we use that science to, uh, to, to inspire people for change, and particularly if we also use all the, the science about all the solutions that are now at our disposal, and indeed, for instance, that technological change on the renewable energy side, but also all the innovations um, about behavioral change, about you know, the lifestyles we can lead, that maybe indeed, you know, I, sh I maybe shouldn't be traveling to other continents so often, but there are so many amazing things to see so, so nearby. And train travel is actually so nice compared to, to air travel, you know, it is much nicer travel. So if we can get our travel systems in Europe in order, I can still continue to travel, but it, it's a different, but still very, very nice experience. So if we get those sorts of changes also underway, uh, there's also still a lot of hope, I would say, in what we can collectively achieve. Uh, and it, I, I see it as my mission partly also to produce our science in a way that can inspire that action and, and enable us to make the changes, the, si the system changes uh, that we need urgently. And for our listeners, um, how can they get involved, you would say, or what is the, the main ways of uh, them taking action to support uh, climate and specifically health initiatives? Well, there's many things that anyone can do, right? It's from your individual behavior to the way you interact with systems. You know, uh, what, what, what you do individually, indeed. Do you fly to Barcelona for a weekend uh, to, uh, to have a night of fun there? Or do you feel that that's no longer appropriate? I mean, these are things we need to think about. Our own carbon footprint, you know, uh, our own 
food consumption patterns, for instance, another big one. Um, but also the, the, the way we have conversations, you know, like we're having here at the University of Twente about the footprint of the university, uh, the travel we do for, for our research activities. We, we can collectively think about that. And then already it starts becoming a bigger pattern and, and a bigger system. In the end, our behavior as voters in the national elections or the behavior of the Netherlands as a member of the European Union and the, the behavior of the European Union as a member of the global system having these discussions, the responsibilities we take for our own footprint, but also the contributions we make to the world reducing its footprint. So all of these things add up and I think there's a, you, you need to do a bit of all of that uh, in order to have the biggest positive change. But specifically on healthcare, many of the things can be very small. Uh, and I think the most powerful in the Netherlands might be to be aware of the rising risk of heat waves. Um, and we know that, um, uh, well, two of the three biggest so-called natural disasters in the Netherlands the past century were the two heat waves of 2003 and 2006. We have a heat wave plan now, but it primarily takes care of protocols in things like elderly homes. Uh, there are also many vulnerable people, especially elderly. Uh, we have a growing elderly population, of course, who, you know, we know that in a, a, a sizable heat wave in the Netherlands, there are hundreds of people that lose their lives. And it's primarily dehydration. So elderly people don't feel that thirst impulses uh, strongly anymore. Um, so if you have, you know, an elderly mother or father, or if you have an elderly neighbor, maybe someone living on their own because their, their, um, their husband or wife has already passed away, um, give them a call or knock on their door and ask, have you had your six glasses of water a day? And because uh, they might be sitting in, in, on the couch or, or lying in bed and just feeling tired and you feel more tired if you, uh, if you dehydrate. So there's less incentive to walk to the tap and get a glass of water. Uh, and that's actually what then triggers other health impacts, which are not always recognized as, as a heat impact directly. So it's not even in the statistics, but that actually kills people. And so the reverse, asking if they've had their six glasses of water a day or bringing them a glass of water, uh, can literally save lives. And that's a very simple, practical thing we can do. Now, on top of that, if you then think about longer term adaptation, of course, you know, a greener city is a cooler city. So you can also think about how around your house, in your own neighborhood, you can, uh, you can make the, the environment greener and that might then also help prevent the heat from hitting as hard as it, uh, as it will during a heat wave. So a big way of uh, addressing climate change and its health impacts is just reach out to your neighbors and create a stronger urban community? Exactly. A lot of it starts, starts around you. So uh, that's a very practical one that everyone can do, uh, can do very nearby. And once again, it's, it's, it's one of the, 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 the most rapid and very unrecognized health risk in the Netherlands. We think of the Netherlands as at risk of sea level rise or maybe of increased runoff of the rivers because we, we, we think of ourselves as a, a water management country. But actually, the heat risks are very underestimated. And, and of course, that's, that's a direct health impact. I would like to ask a bit of a personal question, maybe. Uh, well, personal for me, I mean. Uh, Croatia, I'm from Croatia, has been recognized as the number one European country uh, in heat deaths. And we had not known about it at all. It was news to us. Yeah. It was done by a researcher somewhere in Europe. Um, how was that possible? And how do we recognize uh, heat-related deaths? So the challenge is that uh, the way we, we recognize that scientifically is, is from statistics, right? So you look at the normal mortality in a particular time of year, uh, and then, you know, so you see typically a curve through the year, and there's usually parts of the year where you, you know, like in winter, typically you get higher mortality to, due to flu, uh, for instance, going around. Um, and then suddenly in summer, you, you, you see little peaks. Uh, and I mean, we saw it very, very clearly with COVID, right? We saw all those excess deaths. 
due to COVID in many countries, and you saw the waves of COVID moving through countries with, with lots of excess mortality. But then in several countries, you also see little peaks uh, that coincide with very hot weeks. So then you can do the statistical analysis and, uh, and demonstrate that indeed those, those extra deaths are due to the, the heat conditions of those, uh, of those times. And uh, there are very clear, uh, more sort of individual patient pathways that demonstrate we get in in increasing cardiac problems, we get increasing kidney failure. So there's a lot of, and, and often through a dehydration pathway as well. So there, there's very clear medical evidence of how you would get to those statistics. Uh, but on an individual patient basis, you know, you often get an elderly person dying at home and then the doctor comes and says, oh, cardiac arrest. And then that's what, what's on the death certificate. Whereas actually it's cardiac, cardiac arrest triggered partly by dehydration, triggered by the extreme heat. Uh, so I would argue it is partly a heat-related death case. Uh, and th that's how they end up in the excess mortality statistics. Um, but that's a very indirect, you know, so the doctor doesn't say this person died of heat. Uh, it doesn't hit the newspaper right away as people that have died of heat. Whereas if it would have been people drowning due to a flood, there would be violent images, you know, of people dying, but also cars being thrown out. And you know, so, so that has an immediate impact on people. Here, you get a report from a statistics office or even an external researcher at some point doing the math on those statistical numbers. And then weeks or months later, you get a report like that. So it's not appreciated as much as, as people dying. The second, then, uh, that, the second argument that I often get is, well, there are probably people that are, you know, and, and there are indeed often people that are already vulnerable, so either with chronic diseases or very old or very young. Uh, but wouldn't they have died anyhow? Uh, you know, now it's the heat, but you know, for instance, that person that I was just mentioning already had a weak heart. So you know, maybe they died due to the heat wave now, but otherwise they would have died two, week, two weeks later due to the same cardiac problem. Um, and of course, statistically, you can correct for that. So that correction is indeed done, and it, it, it turns out not to be the case. But even if people are already old, you know, if they could live a couple of years, why is it suddenly okay if they die, if it's an entirely preventable death with relatively simple interventions? So um, I do think this is actually, um, well, a scandal might be too, too harsh a words, but, but it is, you know, they, these are avoidable deaths. And I think from a public health perspective, we should take responsibility. And government should have stronger heatwave plans, but also individuals should take better care of others around them in their environment. It's often like that with climate change, isn't it? That nothing is directly caused by climate change. It's just climate change made it stronger or weaker or more common or... Um, happen in this area where it didn't used to. It, nothing is really ever directly climate change, therefore, this. Yeah, so 20 years ago we would say we cannot say anything about an individual event in climate change because climate change is the, you know, you would only see climate change over an average, a statistical average over 30 year moving climate period. By now we have the statistical tools to talk about individual weather events. Uh, and initially that was indeed like the 2003 heat wave in Europe, which killed tens of thousands of people, was the first time we did an attribution study where we could actually say, okay, that was already twice as likely due to climate change. Again, it's not due to climate change, but twice as likely due to climate change. What we're seeing now is that some of those extreme events are moving into categories where the chances of them having happened without climate change are getting so infinitely small that you could almost say this event would not have happened without climate change. Uh, and that's where you can start to say climate change is to blame. Now, it's of course still the question of the hazard, the heat conditions that you would have, would not have happened without climate change. 
the way you prepare for those conditions is still something we control. And that is part of the discussion we need to have right now. We know how the climate is changing. So I think we are also responsible to prepare for it properly. And that's one question for the healthcare system in the Netherlands, for instance. Are we ready for the new health risks that are coming our way, such as heat waves in the Netherlands? Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, one final question for our listeners. Out of our whole conversation, what is the one main takeaway that you would like for them to leave with? That there's good reason, based on the science, to be quite concerned about where we are and where we're headed. But there's also a lot of hope and many solutions that, you know, especially a young generation of students at the University of Twente, for instance, can work on and make a really big difference to the direction of your own community, your own country, but also the world. There's that balance again. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Martin, for an incredibly informative conversation. I really hope we can maybe feature you on the podcast uh, once again. Uh, until then, thank you very much. Pleasure. That was an incredibly informative interview. Thank you once again, Martin, for taking the time to talk to us. We are hoping to have the opportunity to talk to you again. But Klitsia, this is not the only interview of today, is it? It's Who not. did you interview and why are, what did they have to say? I have had the pleasure to talk with Marianne, a new T alumnus, and uh, she graduated here in uh, health sciences. And mm, we talked about her work now at MST and uh, how she was able to see and pursue the connection between healthcare and sustainability. To me, she proved that no matter what you're studying, if you really care about the topic of environment and sustainability, you will find somehow a way to dedicate your work to it. And uh, I found this talk really interesting and inspiring, especially because I myself study in the healthcare sector. I can imagine. I look really forward to uh, hearing this interview. I'm curious to know how UT has impacted her journey towards sustainability. Uh, did you touch upon that subject too? Yes, that was exactly one of the questions I asked because it's <laughs> uh, something like Green Hub and uh, we are working um, towards too. So, and, um, but I don't want to spoil anything, so I think we can just listen to the interview. Well, in that case, if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's jump into your interview with uh, Marion now. Hello everyone, today I'm really pleased to welcome Marianne Kostra-Jonker. Uh, Marianne did her studies at UT and now works for MST and uh, she's the coordinator of a program about sustainability and inclusion. Welcome Marianne. Thank you. Uh, we're really uh, happy to be able to have a chat with you and if we want to start, do you want to tell us a bit uh, about yourself and uh, your academia background? Yeah, well, uh, you already uh, told what, what, uh, what I'm doing at uh, the MST and um, uh, well, I'm, I'm 37 years old, mother of two kids and uh, when I studied here at UT, uh, first I did health sciences uh, and later on when I was already working, I also did a master in risk management. Yes, really interesting. And uh, as an icebreaker, we always uh, like to ask this question to all our guests. And the question is, what is your unsustainable guilty pleasure? Uh, well, I, I decided to eat uh, vegan uh, a while ago, but when someone serves a pie or a cake, <laughs> I, think, I, I find it really uh, too hard to resist. So often I think, well, it won't change any buying decisions of someone. I'll take a piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm also I'm trying to uh, go vegetarian actually, but yeah, uh, it's a bit hard when someone cooks for you or actually uh, like there's some effort behind it. And uh, if you know that the source is good and it comes from a good place, then <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair enough. <laughs> and going back to the uh, 
um, or to your program? Do you want to talk a bit more about it and uh, what's your job specifically? Yeah, at, uh, at MSD, uh, well, uh, we have set up a program. It focuses on CO2 reduction, on uh, work, uh, making healthcare of our, our hospital more uh, circular. Uh, we, uh, we focus on medication, reducing the impact of medication on groundwater uh, and uh, surface water. Uh, we'll also reduce uh, spillage because uh, production of medication also has, uh, has a big impact. And um, we, uh, uh, we, well, we also focus on uh, inclusion and diversity. And um, uh, we also look uh, at how can we uh, create a more uh, healthy environment um, uh, of, uh, at, at the hospital, but then we focus on um, food and um, yes. for, for patients, uh, employees and visitors. Uh, and um, uh, also on, um, yeah, we, uh, it's, it's maybe a bit bad translation, but um, uh, movement hospital. Uh, so when you, uh, as a patient, you come in the hospital, you don't just put on your pajamas and stay yeah. in bed, but you, uh, yeah, you keep being active. Uh, so, um, oh, like maybe. so, the patients uh, keeps doing like physical activity. You mean? Yes, yes, and it could be as simple as sitting on a table and eating your lunch. Yes. Um, uh, or doing just a few steps in your room. Uh, um, but the the traditional view, I think, of a lot of patients was, and maybe also hospital personnel as well, when a patient comes in the hospital. They sit in bed and uh, you wait for the doctor, for the nurse, for for other people, and you're sick. You're uh, you have to lie in bed, but that's yeah. really an outdated perspective. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel that this specific topic relates to sustainability? Um, uh, yeah, there is um, there is we have the Green Deal um, uh, uh, sustainable healthcare, and it consists of several themes. And one uh, of the themes is more uh, um, uh, on prevention, but in, their, in an earlier version of the Green Deal, it was um, about a healthy uh, work and live environment. And um, well, at, at our hospital, I started to talk with people, and this was one of the, um, the projects uh, where people were working on, and I thought, well, if we work on um, keeping people active in the hospital, they, they also, um, their muscles, etc., uh, keeps in better form and then they can go home earlier. Yes. So, um, so overall there is a benefit at the yes, end. Yes, yes, there is yes. a sustainable benefit as well. So um, to go a bit more into specifics, I'm really curious because to me it's a bit hard to imagine how you can um, actually... Uh, change the old protocol, like for example, you talked about reducing CO2, CO2 emissions or uh, uh, buying food or uh, other, any other tools and equipment. What do you actually, what did you actually do so far? Um, well, uh, for example, when you talk about CO2 uh, emissions, uh, reducing them, we um, uh, have um, uh, made some. Uh, uh, um, uh, we, we changes in the air treatment systems of our hospital and well that that maybe sounds as something uh, small but it really is responsible for uh, a great deal of our energy uh, yes. usage so uh, by doing that uh, well we, we really made a big redu reduction um, 
uh, also um, uh, when, when we look at the air ventilation and how many times uh, the air is uh, um, yeah, changed uh, within, uh, uh, within uh, an hour. Um, well, we also have, could have, can, uh, have made some changes in that and by doing that, uh, 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 well, it saves a lot of energy. Uh, but also, uh, we look at uh, can we make it more attractive uh, for people to go uh, by bike or by public transport? Because um, uh, uh, people may don't don't know it, but uh, uh, the CO two of the yeah the CO two emissions by in a hospital, uh, well, the biggest uh, uh, part is uh, the, the energy usage of a hospital for for our building, our estates. But also uh, mobility is a big one, not only of the employees, of course, but also of the patients and, and visitors. Uh, and then uh, the production of, uh, of medicines. And then it's indirect uh, or yeah. indirect. So you, you think there's already a lot of things we can do just looking at the bigger picture without actually going uh, into the protocols and changing, uh, I don't know, procedures or uh, management oh, yeah. or ad of well, other tools? This is just the CO2 emissions when you uh, look at uh, working more circular. I think uh, that's uh, in our hospital we have a lot of green teams that, uh, on departments or, uh, or on spe uh, for specialism and they uh, often focus on uh, reducing uh, waste uh, uh, and uh, separating uh, uh, the waste uh, that we have in our hospital. And uh, for example, uh, there is an action now in our hospital uh, where we look in how can we reduce the usage of gloves, the uh, production of gloves. Yeah, can you imagine a lot of gloves are used in our yeah, hospital? <laughs> I don't know whether you know how much gloves a hospital uh, uses, but I, I recently learned that uh, last half year we uh, used 4 million gloves. Oh my god. <laughs> it's insane. Yes. You know, that it, 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 yeah, uh, it's, it's almost beyond imagination how much that, uh, that is. And uh, we also uh, participate now in a, a paracetamol uh, challenge. And uh, it's about um, giving paracetamol more often orally uh, instead of um, via... Uh, Injected, you mean? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, overall, I found all these projects really inspiring. There are many groups that work towards sustainability then. Yeah, yes. at, at this moment, we have uh, 11 green teams in our hospital and we have uh, a, a, a few central uh, green teams who are all working on a, well, a lot of initiatives to make healthcare more sustainable. All right. And uh, well, it's, it's really great to see uh, how much energy uh, people put in. And for example, when you look at our operating theater, they are really active in uh, reducing their uh, climate impact. Yes. And what inspired you in the first place to combine your background in health science with sustainability work in the healthcare sector? Well, um, I, uh, uh, in my private life, I uh, started to um, act more and more uh, or, or to, to reduce my impact, uh, my climate impact more and more, uh, especially when I uh, got kids. My, my eldest son now is uh, seven years old. It really um, yeah, made me realize that I want to uh, 
to give them uh, uh, the best possible future and that I also can play a part in, uh, in that. And I started to make changes uh, at home uh, more and more and at a certain point I thought I want to make more impact. And I uh, got uh, uh, participated in um, the start of Hereboeren uh, Twente and later on Hereboeren Usle S. It is a small-scale cooperative uh, okay. farm here in the south of Enschede. And um, well, after that, I thought I want to make my job of, out of it. And I already worked in the hospital. I know the hospital really well. Uh, and I, I, well, the, the chances came along to, uh, yeah, lead the sustainability movement yeah. in the hospital. I feel this is really relatable, actually. Thank you for sharing that with us. And do you feel that UT um, influenced uh, your journey towards sustainability? I wish it had, but no. No. <laughs> no, no. I, I, stud- I started uh, studying health sciences in 2004, and back then it really wasn't a team. Yeah. I, I, I'm really jealous here when I hear about the Green Hub and all the initiatives yes, here. Yes, now and it's now really I, taking off. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would love to go back in time and uh, <laughs> be part of that. Yeah, now there's also a minor in circular economy transition and also a master in sustainable energy technology, oh, wow. so, which is yeah. uh, really impressive. And so looking back, do you feel, do you, did you wish that you had some particular knowledge uh, about sustainability before entering the working field? Well, you can focus on, on two, uh, uh, two different point of views. Uh, one uh, side you can say, I want to have more knowledge about sustainability in healthcare, about um, uh, how to make healthcare more circular, uh, um, life cycle analysis, uh, understanding um, uh, how to um, uh, collect uh, uh, data about the effect of uh, sustainability measures, uh, for example. But uh, on the other hand, uh, well, in uh, health science, we had some uh, uh, some uh, some colleges about um, uh, change management, but more um, specific information about how to, uh, from the behavioral uh, point of view, how to change behavior, how uh, best to communicate, uh, to create awareness, to create this sense of urgency. I think that also is really, uh, really helpful. Uh, well, and uh, working on sustainability, it's so broad. I think we, uh, well, there, there, there isn't almost uh, a study who just uh, can't um, uh, can participate in uh, in this, but yeah, that that was what came to mind. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, um, in what ways do you see a connection between healthcare and sustainability? Oh well, there there is a big connection. In healthcare, we uh, try to uh, make people healthy uh, again, and um, we we focus on uh, on sick people and and to well to make them better. But at the same time, we also um, have a, a, a big uh, impact on uh, the climate uh, transition. Yes. Uh, we, we are responsible as healthcare for 7% of the CO2 emissions. And I think that's huge. It's more than the, um, uh, uh, the, the, air, uh, the, the airplane industry. Uh, so we we really we really should should change we use uh, 14% of all raw materials uh, in in holland 
So we really should change. And uh, for a long time, uh, healthcare always was the acceptance. Uh, everyone uh, should change, but we can go on because yes. uh, healthcare always must be able to continue. But I think. Um, we should be more strict to healthcare uh, to change because without uh, regulations, without um, a sense of urgency from top down, yes, the, the change won't go fast enough. Lead by example, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. and so in your opinion, what are the sustainability initiatives that hospitals should focus more on? Um, I think uh, um, uh, we uh, uh, more. I think uh, the hospitals are, are already really busy, but I think we should focus more on uh, making healthcare more circular. I think um, uh, uh, energy reduction. Uh, a lot of hospitals already uh, strongly focus on that. Yes. Um, but when it comes to making healthcare more sustainable, uh, more circular. Um, the budget uh, discussion comes along and uh, quite often it's more expensive and um, I also think uh, we are uh, really, uh, the, the healthcare sector is quite conservative so um, we, we, maybe we need a more uh, out of the box uh, few uh, people who uh, can think with us how, how to change processes to really Uh, reduced uh, the, the reduction of materials. Um, uh, um, yeah, to to consume. Uh, yeah, to consume less and uh, also like uh, well in the uh, focus more on prevention. Maybe yes. that is the the most underlighted. Yeah. when you talk about making healthcare more sustainable. And I imagine this is one of the topics uh, in the program you are coordinating now, uh, the topics you are taking care of. Yeah, well, uh, pre prevention unfortunately, unfortunately isn't, because it's outside uh, the hospital, mm. uh, mainly. Um, it's not completely true, <laughs> a lot of it's outside. Uh, but uh, making the health, uh, hospital more circular definitely is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the challenges you've encountered in promoting sustainability in the healthcare settings? And uh, how have you overcome them? Yeah, well, I think um, the, uh, one of the challenges is uh, is a sense of urgency. I think um, uh, more and more professionals within healthcare are aware uh, that we uh, should become more uh, sustainable as a hospital, but still uh, within a hospital there are a lot of priorities uh, we have to work on. And uh, in, um, I often uh, um, uh, see that uh, sustainability is not on the top priority list. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that, that is an, uh, uh, yeah. That is something that we have to work on. And when, when I look at my own hospital, I try to tackle this to also make it part of the planning and control cyclus. Uh, uh, and not, well, yeah, to make it part of the, plan, top, uh, of the planning and control cyclus. So also top management uh, is asked about what they do on sustainability. 
and on the other hand really uh, focus on um, making more and more colleagues and enthusiasts uh, share uh, inspiration uh, with them because uh, that really helps to get people uh, going on with this, uh, with this team. Another um, challenge is uh, the uh, legislation, uh, but also guidelines that we have to follow. Yes. Healthcare, of course, is all about safety and, well, I think we have sa taken safety way too far. Um, uh, it, uh, we, we don't accept any risk uh, anymore. Um, and uh, but, but when you look at guidelines, when you look at risk legislation, I also notice that there is a grey area. So uh, when uh, in my at my hospital people tell me this isn't possible, I sometimes uh, go and talk to other people from other hospitals. Yes. And uh, well, look how how is their point of view? Uh, is is there maybe some space to well to still make make a change to a more sustainable yeah. uh, outcome? Uh, alternatives, for example. So to overcome one of these challenges, it's really important communication between hospitals as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Share, uh, share uh, best practices uh, uh, where we work on, and luckily that already happens. But I think it should, uh, we should share way much more. Okay. Uh, that's that's uh, yeah, that's important. And last challenge, a big challenge I see is a budget. <laughs> I can imagine. Yes, that really is also a big, uh, a big challenge. And um, yeah, I think you can overcome this partly uh, by uh, uh, um, asking for a budget. Uh, um, uh, like so, uh, some of the sustainability measures cost money, others save money. So when you ask uh, for the possibility to, to keep the money uh, that is saved by sustainability measures, mm -hmm. then there is more space uh, to take uh, sustainability measures that cost money. Yes. So, so that way you create your own uh, budget. All right. <laughs> I think we covered everything. Thank you for answering all our questions and for making time for us. And uh, it was a pleasure. And um, do you have any takeaway you want to leave for the listeners, for students, for example, that are also doing health sciences or uh, me, myself, I'm doing biomedical engineering, for example? Yes. Um, well, I think uh, uh, as all students uh, can, um, uh, uh, for all students, it's possible to, um, to participate in this uh, green movement. Uh, uh, and I think we, we can, there already is quite some knowledge about how to make healthcare uh, sustainable but we also uh, or, yeah, miss uh, a, lot of, a lot of knowledge so uh, from your own uh, fields, uh, uh, academic fields, look at, at what you can do uh, to, make, uh, to make it more sustainable. For example you are a biomedical uh, engineer, well we have a lot of uh, um, medical um, uh, uh, technical uh, devices in our uh, in our hospital is it possible uh, to make the energy consumption uh, lower or is it possible to continue the lifespan of yes. uh, the medical devices and uh, well when you are uh, in communication or uh, psychology uh, how uh, how can we stimulate uh, people uh, to uh, participate in this? How can we uh, nudge maybe uh, behavior 
um, uh, when you are uh, with uh, electoral uh, uh, background, uh, how can we uh, uh, make our estates more uh, CO2, uh, uh, realize a reduction, reduction of CO2 emissions. Yes. And uh, when you do uh, health sciences, also maybe look at the processes uh, in hospital, uh, also for the business administration side, can we um, make uh, changes in the processes so um, for example, uh, patients have to come, don't have to come as often to our hospital uh, um, or... Uh... You're saying that uh, each student should take this as a personal challenge as well, to take action immediately yeah. and then apply it in, the, in what we're actually studying at university. Yes, yeah, absolutely. All yeah. right. And, and yeah, we, uh, they are welcome uh, to uh, help us uh, <laughs> at the stage. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Marianne, for your time. And um, I hope we can talk soon again. Yes, thank you very thank much. You. This episode was filmed during the TechMed event at the University of Twente. The topic of the event this year was sustainability, which is what made us come and visit and have these interviews. We would like to thank the TechMed Center of our university for hosting this event and recognizing sustainability as an important issue in healthcare. Before we end this special episode, we would like to play an audio clip that was played at the beginning of the event, reminding everyone of why they were there. It was made by Marlin Twalhoven and his website www.tegendijk.nl. That is www.tegentijd.nl, which features creative ways to get in touch with future generations. Thank you for listening to Green Talks. Hey there, hello. It's me, someone from three generations in the future. We don't know each other, but I've learned and heard a lot about you and the people living at the beginning of the century, a time when so many things changed. While you were alive, decisions were made that have shaped my world. I wasn't there to influence them. What you deemed important, what you chose and did, defines my life. I received a legacy from you. The results of your work, your care and your ideas. But also the result of greed, self-interest and a total disrespect for the limits of our planet Earth. I live in what you call the future. Do you ever talk about that? It seems to me that you're only concerned with your own time. Do you ever think about me or about what might be a good world to hand over to my generation? Like a gift from your generation to mine? Or is that future too far away, a distant land beyond the horizon? Well, that land may be distant, but it's not uninhabited. I live there. I'm glad I can talk to you like this and connect with you even though I'm not yet there. Your generation has profound impact on my world, but I'm unable to reach out to you directly. Is there space for me in your life? 
What could you do, or maybe not do, to pass on the earth to me with a good feeling? You're part of me. Can I also become part of you?